On a cold March morning in 1997, someone knocked on Noreen Gosh's door. It was about 2.30 a.m., and a middle-aged Noreen rushed to answer. Perhaps the knock pulled her from another restless night's sleep. After all, the poor woman hadn't slept well since the early 80s when her 12-year-old son Johnny went missing. She answered the door to her Des Moines, Iowa apartment to find two men standing on the other side. They say mothers know best, and Noreen knew in her heart that one of the men standing in her doorway was her long-lost son, Johnny, now 27 years old. Noreen, the police, the FBI, everyone lent a hand in the 15-year search for Johnny, and here he was showing up unannounced on his mother's doorstep. He warned her not to call the police, saying he'd be in danger if she did. Then, he opened his shirt to reveal a birthmark on his chest. And while the birthmark was a nice touch, Noreen was already convinced. The two talked for about an hour and a half. Johnny kept looking at the other mystery man before speaking, as if he was asking permission. And he never said where he was living or going, only that Noreen couldn't go to the police once he left. If she did, she'd be putting him in danger. Then, as abruptly as they came, they left. Noreen waved goodbye and made good on her promise, keeping her mouth shut about the secret meeting for two agonizing years. Though emotional turmoil was a feeling she knew all too well. I'm Chris. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. Let's rewind to September 5th, 1982, the last time the Gosh family was whole. It was still dark on that Sunday morning when 12-year-old Johnny Gosh left on his paper route around 5.45 a.m. Usually, he and his father tackled the deliveries together, but that morning, for some reason, Johnny decided to take the family dachshund, Gretchen, instead. He pulled his red wagon to pick up the morning copies of the Des Moines Register. The headlines read, USDA focus shifts back to farmers, and China offers accord with the Soviet Union. Home video recorders allowed people to tape their favorite TV shows, and an arson fire in Los Angeles had just killed 25 people. But 72 hours later... Every newspaper across the country asked the same question. What happened to Johnny Gosh? Two hours after Johnny left his cozy house, someone called to complain about a late paper. And that was unlike Johnny. He'd never received a complaint in his year-long career as a paper boy, and he had just won a perfect service award from the register. But that first complaining phone call sparked a decades-long search for the missing paper boy. Johnny's father, John, set out searching for his son. He found Johnny's little red wagon two blocks away from their home, still full of newspapers. A handful of rubber bands were scattered on the pavement nearby. According to the police report, John picked up where Johnny left off and finished the delivery. Meanwhile, Gretchen the dog made her way home alone, but nobody had seen or heard from Johnny for hours. Noreen called the police to report his disappearance, but at the time, policy dictated that someone couldn't be considered missing until 72 hours had passed, even if that someone was a 12-year-old boy. As far as Des Moines police were concerned, Johnny ran away. At least two other people, another paper boy and John Rossi, a father who was helping his son that morning, saw some oddities at the spot where the boys gathered to pick up their papers. Both of them told police they saw Johnny talking with a stocky man in a blue, two-toned car. Maybe a Ford Fairmont. Johnny even approached Rossi, saying the man needed directions. But Rossi knew something was off, so he looked at the blue car's license plate before the man made a U-turn and left. 
Curiously, he watched him reach up and turn the car's dome light on and off three times before driving away. Was it a signal? Unfortunately, Rossi couldn't remember the plate number when the police questioned him. It haunted him for years to come. He eventually went under hypnosis to remember the number, but all he could recall was that the plate was from Warren County, Iowa. For decades, he hoped to wake up in the middle of the night to a eureka moment and see the license plate clear as day, but so far, no luck. When Johnny headed north on his route, at least two other paper boys noticed a man follow him. Then a neighbor heard a car door slam and watched a silver Ford Fairmont speed away, leaving Gretchen and the red wagon behind. Days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and months turned to years. Noreen became so fed up with what she considered a lackluster police investigation that she hired two private investigators to help find Johnny. She enlisted Jim Rothstein, a retired NYPD detective, and Ted Gunderson, a retired FBI agent, among other PIs. Noreen's PI team suggested Johnny was kidnapped and forced into a child prostitution ring, though more official authorities say there's no evidence to support that theory. Then again, PIs don't follow the same investigative principles as your standard Iowa detective. Anything is possible. In August of 84, another Des Moines area paperboy named Eugene Martin went missing under similar circumstances. And when I say similar, I mean very similar. Eugene was around the same age. He was 13, and he even looked a little like Johnny. And just like Johnny, he disappeared early on a Sunday morning while delivering papers along his route. There are even witnesses who say they saw him talking to a strange man that morning. But the police couldn't draw a line between Johnny and Eugene's cases. And meanwhile, Noreen claimed the two cases were absolutely linked. And not only that, but one of her PIs predicted the abduction months beforehand, saying someone would kidnap another paperboy on the south side of Des Moines in the second week of August. The police were grasping at straws regarding any possible suspects. A New York Times article published two days after Eugene's abduction said police were looking for a 5-foot, 9-inch loner between 30 and 40 years old. He'd be clean-shaven and sporting a medium build. Aside from the loner trait, they were easily describing most middle-aged men in America. Ultimately, Eugene's disappearance forced many newspapers to shift away from children and only hire adult carriers. Then, on a Sunday evening in March 1986, yet another 13-year-old boy disappeared in the area. Mark Allen was on his way to a friend's house, but he never made it there, and he hasn't been seen since. Sometimes, tragedy brings out the worst in people, and some of the worst con men are those who take advantage of the confused and vulnerable for financial gain. Robert Herman Meir was one of those people. Noreen and John made one thing very clear. They'd do anything under the sun to find Johnny. So when they got a letter from someone calling themselves Samuel Forbes Dakota and claiming to know where Johnny was, they listened. According to his letter, he had worked as a guard in a motorcycle club involved in human trafficking. Starting in April 1979, he claimed he personally guarded some 200-odd children and delivered no less than 30 to the auction block. One of those was Johnny Gosh. According to Robert slash Samuel, the club sold Johnny as a pet to a high-level drug dealer in Mexico City. He told Noreen he needed $11,000 in ransom money to divulge information on Johnny. Noreen obliged and sent him several checks, holding on to hope that he could get her son back. 
But like any other scam artist, Robert asked for more. He upped the ransom to $100,000, which the Goshes were more than ready to pay. Thankfully, the police caught up with Robert at the Buffalo-Canadian border and arrested him for fraud. He was only 19 when police caught him in 1985, meaning he was 16 when the club allegedly sold Johnny and 13 when he supposedly guarded the children. While 80s motorcycle gangs are known for their ruthless behavior, they're not dumb enough to leave a 13-year-old kid in charge of their trafficked children. At least, we don't think they are. But none of that convinced Noreen that Robert was just a scammer. She took him for his word, even criticizing the FBI for arresting him. She claimed his arrest destroyed any chance of someone coming forward to try to ransom Johnny. But she was wrong. People kept coming out of the woodwork, claiming to know what happened to their son. In the early 90s, an inmate in a Nebraska prison claimed he had information on Johnny's disappearance. In fact, he was the man who helped kidnap Johnny. His name was Paul Bonacci. He was serving time for an alleged sexual assault on a minor, but he claimed he himself was a former victim of a child trafficking ring that abducted him and later forced him to help kidnap Johnny. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, he said the boy was held captive for several days at a house in Sioux City, Iowa, almost three hours away from his home. The next time he saw Johnny was four years later at another trafficking house in Colorado. The Goshes were skeptical. Paul wasn't the first person to try and cash in on Johnny's disappearance, and he probably wouldn't be the last. They decided to test his credibility. Police had a rough composite sketch of the man witnesses described in 1982. When they took the image to Paul in prison, they laid out the sketch among a dozen other photos, and he picked the right one. He said that was the man who ordered him to kidnap Johnny the night before. To boost his credibility, Paul told Noreen things he could only know if he had actually met her son. He mentioned the birthmark on his chest, a scar on his leg, and a distinctive horseshoe-shaped scar on his tongue. Everyone following the case knew about the birthmark on the chest. It was a feature that had been widely circulated. But the other scars weren't public information. Paul even described the way Johnny would stutter when he was upset. Noreen was convinced, but the cops weren't. They say there's no way Paul could have been in Des Moines that morning in 1982. According to his siblings, he was in Nebraska the morning Johnny went missing. It's worth noting that back in the 80s when Johnny was taken, stories about child sex trafficking rings sounded nuts. The deepest and darkest kind of conspiracy theory. But over the years, credible evidence has proven that kind of thing can and does happen everywhere. Just look at the story of Stephen Stainer. He was abducted in California at age 7 in 1972. His kidnapper molested him for seven years until he was forced to help the man take a new, younger victim. That's when he made his escape and rescued the next boy. In Johnny's case, there were plenty of strange sightings over the years. In March 1983, a woman in Oklahoma saw two men chasing a boy. He ran up to her and said, Please, lady, help me. My name is John David Gosh. She reported it, but the local police chalked it up to a family situation. But months later, when she happened to catch a news segment about the missing paper boy, she called the hotline to say the boy she saw in Oklahoma was definitely him. A PI working for the Goshes teamed up with the FBI to check it out, and they confirmed it was real. Then, in 1985, a woman came forward with a dollar bill she got as part of her change while checking out at a grocery store in Sioux City. 
Next to the picture of George Washington were the words, I am alive, Johnny Gosh. The UPI reported three experts and his parents verified it was his handwriting, and once again, they found themselves in front of the cameras begging for their son's return. But their pleas were met with silence. The following year, a circulation manager at the Des Moines Register was arrested and charged with sexually abusing little boys. Wilbur Milhouse was found with 2,000 names and numbers of mostly young boys. He said he used the numbers to recruit paper boys, but his arrest as part of a sting into a local pedophile ring only supported Noreen's suspicions that Johnny had been targeted and taken for that purpose. But the man was never officially connected to Johnny's disappearance. The case turned stone cold for the next few years until news broke of a body found in northern Mexico, a body identified as Johnny Gosh. On a Friday in late March 1990, Mexican authorities pulled a corpse from a drainage ditch and the news made it back to Noreen in Des Moines. And she recalled Robert's story about a Mexican drug lord keeping Johnny as a pet and was ready to finally close the book. Sadly, this wasn't her Johnny. Mexican authorities identified the body as John E. Gosh of Tacoma, Washington. Meanwhile, police in Arizona said the boy was killed in a drug-related shooting, and somehow his body wound up in Mexico. The Washington Goshes adopted the boy in 1980 and renamed him John. And to make the whole thing even stranger, he was even Johnny's age, born two weeks before the missing paper boy. The next glimmer of hope for Noreen was when Johnny knocked on her door in 1997. She was afraid that Johnny could get hurt if she told anyone, even her husband. But Noreen couldn't hold it in any longer, so she sat on the story until 1999 when she was called to testify in a civil suit brought by Paul Bonacci against Lawrence King, manager of the Omaha-based Franklin Credit Union. Paul claimed the man forced him and dozens of other boys into a child prostitution ring. The case became known as the Franklin Credit Union Scandal, and it didn't start and stop with Paul's allegations. It involved charges of embezzlement and corruption that name-checked a virtual who's who of the Nebraska elite. And to put it simply, it's a real rabbit hole that we won't go too far down today. But ultimately, Lawrence went to prison for embezzlement, and the human trafficking allegations were written off as baseless. But Noreen never stopped believing that Johnny had been taken by some kind of child trafficking syndicate. In 2000, she self-published a book titled Why Johnny Can't Come Home, in which she laid out all the facts she'd obtained through the years from P.I.'s and Johnny's 1997 visit. While their crusade for Johnny never led them to their son, the Goshes did get several pieces of legislation passed regarding missing children. In 1984, Iowa passed the Johnny Gosh Bill, stating that law enforcement must immediately investigate any missing children cases where foul play could be involved. Before, missing children were treated like missing adults, thus requiring 72 hours gone. Noreen's efforts saw the same law passed in seven other states. She also testified before Congress about organized pedophile and child trafficking rings. She aimed mainly at the North American Man-Boy Love Association, or NAMBLA, blaming them for the string of missing children over the years. Her efforts helped convince the U.S. Department of Justice to establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And then, 24 years after her son disappeared, there was another twist. 
On September 1st, 2006, Noreen opened her door to find a stack of photographs left behind on her stoop. She said the black and white pictures were of 12-year-old Johnny and showed him bound on a bed with his mouth gagged, wearing the same sweatpants he was last seen in. Another photo pictured him with other boys, all of whom were tied up and gagged. It seemed to be a major breakthrough. Then, just weeks later, Des Moines police got an anonymous letter about the photos. The sender said someone was playing a reprehensible trick on Noreen, and the boy in the pictures wasn't her son. They were just kids from Florida playing an escape game. Des Moines police contacted a detective in Florida who the letter writer claimed had investigated the photo, and he corroborated the story. They looked into the picture long before Johnny disappeared and didn't find any foul play. But when Des Moines asked for proof that it was the same decades-old photo, the detective couldn't come through. According to a 2014 documentary titled Who Took Johnny, police only identified some of the boys in the photo. Noreen attests the unidentified boy is her long-lost son. On the 35th anniversary of his disappearance in 2017, Johnny's red wagon was displayed at the Iowa State Fair. In fact, John's last memory with his son was visiting the fair the year he went missing. Young Johnny saw a poster and begged his dad to go. But in looking at the wagon, John was still unsure if his son was alive. To be safe, police took a sample of John's DNA in case he passed away before Johnny turned up. John and Noreen's marriage didn't last long after the kidnapping either. They divorced in 1993, a few years before Johnny visited Noreen in her apartment. As for that alleged visitation, John believes it was another scam artist posing as Johnny. Someone who got their sick kicks from playing pranks on a grieving mother. And today, Johnny Gosh is still missing. His disappearance is one of the coldest and strangest cases in American history. And that's your recap, but don't go away. There's plenty more recaps to listen to, and if you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you took a second to subscribe and give this show a five-star review. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care.